My wife is from South Florida, and one of her major beefs about living in South Florida is that she missed out on the changing seasons. Apparently, Fort Lauderdale has four seasons. Almost hot, hot, hotter, hottest. All year round. It's summer all year round. Georgia, though, does have its hot summers, but the heat doesn't linger forever. Eventually, autumn pushes summer aside with its chilly breezes and its colorful leaves. Autumn is followed by that winter frost and that occasional snow dusting that shuts the whole city down. Amazing. Winter finally yields to spring with its cool mornings and its blossoming dogwoods. People in Georgia can savor the seasons. And just as there are seasons in the year, there are also seasons in our lives. There is the spring of childhood, the hot summer of adolescence, the autumn of adulthood, and then the winter of old age. Life is not one smooth, unchanging progression. As we live out our days, we pass through certain seasons. I've heard this progression described in a number of humorous ways. First, there's the plastic age. Bottles, cups, and pants. Followed by the rubber age. Sneakers and footballs and wide tires. Next is the paper age. Bills and forms, money and checks. Finally, there's the metallic age. Teeth of gold, hair of silver, and lead in the seat of your pants. Human Growth and Development 201, a course that I took in college, outlined the seven stages of life as follows. Infancy, childhood, adolescence, young adult, mature adult, old adult, death. But I like the abridged version of the seven stages of life. Here it is. Spills, drills, thrills, bills eels, pills, and wheels. (laughs) See, no matter how you describe it, there are stages, there are echelons, there are levels of maturity, passages through which we travel on our journey through life. And the same is true in our Christian lives. There are stages of spiritual growth and development, certain levels of maturity, seasons to savor, passages through which we travel on our spiritual journey. And here in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, our text this morning, John describes three stages of spiritual maturity. First, he talks about the little children. Secondly, he mentions the young men or women. And then third, he talks about the fathers, that is, the spiritual parents. I believe a big part of following Jesus is recognizing these various seasons, knowing where a person is headed, where they're at right now, and where they're headed in the future. When we understand this, it really helps us to know where we need to be going in our spiritual lives. When a person turns from sin and embraces Jesus there as their Savior, they become born again. They become a spiritual infant. But the idea is not to remain a baby. I've read the Bible. There are no playpens or pacifiers in heaven. Apparently, God wants us to grow before we get there. He wants us to graduate to young adulthood, 
and eventually on to spiritual parenthood. You know, if you attended a large family reunion, like the one at my house, you'd see a mixture of babies and adolescents and parents and grandparents. And likewise, a healthy church has members in all three stages of spiritual growth. When the family of God meets for our weekly reunion on Sundays, you should be able to find some spiritual babies among us and some adolescents, and then some spiritual parents. Last week, John gave us a test to determine for ourselves if we know God, if we know that we know Him. It's twofold. Do we keep His commandments, and do we love one another? But just knowing that I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm growing as a Christian. And here, verses 12 through 14 are intended to help us measure our growth. In two stanzas, John describes the three stages of spiritual maturity. And he does so in a jingle. It's set to poetry. It was perhaps even a song, probably designed to help us remember. In today's text, John talks about the seasons of a saint. He teaches us how Christians grow and develop. Let's read our text in its entirety, and then we'll come back and we'll study it line upon line. Verse 12 begins, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Now first, John speaks to the little children in God's family. And in these two stanzas, he lists two characteristics about them. First, They know their sins are forgiven. And second, they know God as their father. There are many pleasant feelings in life. There's the thrill of being loved. There's the satisfaction of a job well done. There's the joy of being remembered by a friend at a special time. But of all the possible human emotions, I think nothing compares with the feeling (laughs) Of forgiveness. As a child, whenever I disobeyed my parents, the guilt would literally grip my body. My stomach would feel nauseous. My throat would knot up. My palms got sweaty. Though it meant a spanking, I preferred just going ahead and getting caught just to end the agony. After punishing me, I'll never forget, my dad would always pick me up in his arms and he'd tell me he still loved me. I was forgiven. Oh, the feeling of being free from that guilt. The anvil I had been dragging around was gone. I felt light. I felt free. I had a fresh start again. I was alive. As adults, we still sin. And we're haunted by our guilt. But where do we go to resolve what we've done? You see, modern man in his attempts to eliminate God from his thinking has created an unexpected problem. Now that he's taken God out of the picture, to whom does he go to confess his sins? 
Where can we obtain forgiveness? Some people pay the shrink $100 an hour to help them excuse their sin. Others pretend their sin doesn't exist. Still others try to dismiss their sin by renaming it. Recently, I read this quote from an author. He said, man calls it an accident. God calls it an abomination. Man calls it a blunder. God calls it blindness. Man calls it a mistake. God calls it madness. Man calls it a weakness. God calls it willfulness. Man calls it sickness. God calls it sin. But the problem with defending sin or denying sin or dismissing sin is that it doesn't remove the guilt of sin. Simply renaming our sin doesn't eliminate it. You see, man without God has no way of ridding himself of his guilt, so he ends up carrying a psychological and an emotional load that his psyche was never designed to bear. The burden of unresolved sin develops all sorts of neurotic tendencies in human beings. The weight of guilt can eventually cause an emotional breakdown. See, there is only one way to truly rid yourself of sin, and that is to confess it. As John told us in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, the Spirit of God cleanses us. He lifts out the grimiest grime and the dirtiest dirt. The Holy Spirit enables us to feel God's forgiveness. Remember the first time you felt that forgiveness? I do. It was a rush. You felt clean. You felt the shame and guilt had vanished. You felt free. Ways of acceptance sort of rolled the burden away, and you just sat there marinating in God's love. John says that the spiritual child still relishes this feeling. He knows that his sins are gone forever. And perhaps the most exciting feature about God's forgiveness is that when God forgives, he forgets. This is so wonderful. When the Moravian missionaries took the gospel to Alaska, they discovered that the Eskimo vocabulary didn't have a term for forgiveness. A word had to be invented. They came up with issue maji jojunk ainer elk milk. You know what it means? Not being able to think about it anymore. Isn't that beautiful? This is God's forgiveness to you and me. God told Jeremiah, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is how God treats your sin. He no longer sees it or even thinks about it. Reminds me of a Christian lady. She was always talking, talking about how God was speaking to her about this. God's speaking to her about that. God said this. God said that. Well, her pastor was sort of skeptical. One day, he's decided to put her to the test. He said, sister, if God really speaks to you, then ask him to tell you about a sin that I committed as a young man. If he tells you what that sin was, then I'll believe God talks to you. Well, for years, the pastor had been tormented by a terrible deed he'd done in college. He'd hidden his sin for years and had never confessed it to a soul. Well, weeks uh, went by before the pastor ever bumped into this lady again. But when he saw her, he asked. He said, did God tell you about my sin? 
She replied, no, he didn't. The pastor laughed. He says, ah, he says, I knew God didn't really speak to you. She said, oh, but he does. When I asked God if he would tell me about your sin, he said he has already forgotten about it. Hey, what God forgives, he forgets. John also tells us that the little children, they know God as their father. What an incredible thought this is. That we can call the God of the universe, the God who hung the stars, who spoke the world out of nothing, that we can call him our Father. Every time you gaze at a beautiful sunset or a dazzling night sky, you can swell up with pride and praise and think to yourself, my Father made that. Romans 8 verse 15 says that the Holy Spirit cries from our hearts, Abba, which means Daddy, Papa. The Spirit places us on intimate terms with God. We can go to God as uninhibitedly as a child runs to his father. God loves you, my friend, with a father's love. He's willing to trust you with the keys to the car. He'll give you that second chance you didn't deserve. He's first to celebrate our triumphs and first to help us recover from our disappointments. Kids can trust their dad. He is a protector, a provider, and God is your dad. Once my elementary school kids, they wanted to ask their parents for a favor. Well, my oldest son, Zach, he sent his younger brother, Nick, to present the big request. Well, when Nick returned, I happened to be in the adjacent room, and I decided to sort of eavesdrop in on their conversation. Nick told Zach, Mom said no. That's when I overheard Zach rebuking Nick. He said, Nick, I told you to ask Dad, not Mom. (laughs) He knew that Dad was a much softer touch. And so is God. He loves to bless his kids. I have some friends who attend a church up in the Smoky Mountains of North Carolina, and they say that four or five times in the sermon, their pastor, he will stop wherever he's talking, and he'll look at the people, and he'll remind them in, their down, in his down-home southern drawl, now don't you forget it, Daddy loves his little chilling. And don't you forget it, you have a dad in heaven who loves you too. I love children. I love to have them around. I admire their zeal and enthusiasm. All of life is a new discovery. If you want a new appreciation of God's creation, just look at it through the eyes of a child. When they see a mountain for the first time, or when they take their first steps out into a freshly fallen snow, or when they visit the zoo, We regain the wonder of things we've long taken for granted by seeing them afresh through the eyes of a child. Kids are such a joy. This is why I love to watch the spiritual children in the family of God, the new believers. They too have a zeal and enthusiasm about the Christian life that's contagious. I admire the simplicity of their faith, their total dependence on God, their eagerness to obey. I recall one new Christian, a young fellow, he came up to me after service one morning with a concerned look on his face. He said, Pastor Sandy, I want to start tithing. I said, what? He says, I don't know what it is, but I've been reading about it, and I want to start tithing. He was talking about tithing. He didn't know what it was, but he wanted to do it. 
Hey, we can all learn from the new believers in the family, but spiritual babes are as vulnerable as they are vivacious. They're often ignorant of important truths and they lack spiritual stamina. They're living in a hostile world and they're not always aware of the dangers around them. This is why God doesn't want us to stay a little child. We need to grow up spiritually. John tells us that we need to become young men or young women of faith. And he mentions two traits of the young men. He's strong and has overcome the wicked one. And he tells us why. Because the word of God abides in him. We face an adversary in the Christian life, the devil or Satan. He is the wicked one. He is the originator of sin. And Satan is clever. His wiles are slick and effective and timely. In fact, he's been trapping saints for centuries. And above all, Satan is persistent. I think one of the first truths that you discover in your spiritual struggle with Satan is that he never takes a break. Never once does he say to his cronies, hey, boys, let's be nice to those folks over at Calvary Chapel today. Never, ever. And a little child is no match for Satan. It takes the young men, the young women who've learned how to be victorious over Satan in their everyday life. They're the ones that have gone out into the world. They've been tested and tried and tempted, and yet they've stood strong. The young adults have developed spiritual muscle. They've even gone on the attack, sharing their faith and letting their light shine and engaging the enemy in prayer. And what is the secret of their strength? Well, John tells us, the word of God abides in them. They take their Bible seriously. How about you? They've made it their priority to study and to meditate and to apply the scriptures to their life. They hold it and they hide it in their hearts. In John Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan portrays a conflict between Christian and Satan. He writes, The devil gathered up close to Christian, and wrestling with him gave him a dreadful fall. Christian's sword flew out of his hand. The devil, with hands on his throat, was pressing him to death. But as God would have it, Christian nimbly reached out his hand for his sword. He caught it and quoted Micah 7 verse 8, Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. And with that, he gave him a deadly thrust. The devil moved back as one who had received a mortal wound. Christian quoted Romans 8 verse 37, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. This time, the devil spread his dragon's wings and sped away, and Christians saw him no more. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempted Jesus, the Lord defended himself with the careful use of the word of God. Three times Jesus quoted scripture. And if our Lord drew the sword of the Spirit in his encounters with Satan, how much more do you and I need to keep that sword by our side? When Satan tries to drown you in condemnation, you, you need to lunge at the enemy. And quote Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When he tries to frighten you, 
thrust him through with 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And when he tries to make you doubt your salvation, touche him. With Hebrews 13 verse 5, God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Young men can handle a sword. They're the spiritual Zoros. How do you know when a person is moving into the second stage of spiritual growth? Here's how. You'll find yourself with an insatiable hunger for God's Word. You can't get enough. You'll want more and more of the Word of God. As Jeremiah prayed, your words were found and I ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. You know, when you're a child, you have to be spoon-fed. Someone else has to feed you. Spiritually, church is your primary source of spiritual nourishment. But as you begin to grow, you begin to read the word for yourself. Your faith gets stronger. Your spiritual life stabilizes. The ups and downs, the highs and lows begin to level out. You get a foundation. The mood swings that beset the child no longer exist. You begin to sink roots. I once had a, it was a beater. It was a, it was a, it didn't last long. I drove a little Chevy Citation for a while. And it had a special extra. It came with it. I called them come and go windshield wipers. When it was dry, they worked fine. The only time I had any problems, of course, was when it rained. The issue apparently was a loose connection. Those windshield wipers weren't properly grounded. And if you're experiencing intermittent victory in your Christian life, if your faith sort of comes and goes, it could be due to a loose connection. You're not properly grounded. You're not founded in God's Word. You see, the young man, the young woman is strong because the Word of God abides in them. There are, though, some potential pitfalls that threaten us as we pass through this stage of spiritual growth. For spiritual adolescence can produce a spiritual arrogance. Get a little knowledge under your belt. Chalk up a few victories. And you can get the big head. You can think you're something now. As Paul said to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up. Understand, laboratory findings reveal that teenagers are notorious know-it-alls. I've learned this firsthand. One parent hung a poster on his teenage, teenager's bedroom door which read, Teenagers... Tired of being hassled by your stupid parents? Act now. Move out. Get a job. Pay your own bills while you still know everything. <laughs> I've heard it said, insanity is hereditary. You get it from your teenagers. <laughs> you know, the typical teenager likes to talk a lot and listen a little. Heard of the teenage girl who was always on the phone. Man, every conversation was over an hour. Finally, her dad reprimanded her, said, honey, you've got to limit your calls to 20 minutes. Well, the next night, her phone rang, and the daughter answered. The dad grabbed his watch, started to time her. He was so surprised when she hung up in 20 minutes. The shocked father, he asked her, he said, which of your friends called, sweetheart? 
The little girl replied with a surprised look on her face. Oh, that wasn't a friend. It was a wrong number. (laughs) And, And this is the problem for the spiritual adolescent. They love to talk. They like to show off what they're learning about God and what they're doing for God. But you try to share a truth with them or give them a word of advice, and they're reluctant to listen. Another pitfall of spiritual adolescence is the tendency to be overly critical. Have you ever noticed this, that teenagers can develop a bad attitude toward the rest of the family? If you've lived with one, you know. It's amazing how little tots believe their parents can do no wrong. Like the eight-year-old boy who said of his father, my dad can climb the highest mountain. He can swim the biggest ocean. He can fly the fastest plane. He can fight the strongest tiger. My dad can do anything, but most of the time he just carries out the garbage. (laughs) But you hear kids out on the playground, and they're squabbling, they're fighting over whose dad is strongest or whose dad is smartest. It's when adolescence hits that a dose of realism sets in. The children begin to see their parents as people now. They become aware of their flaws and their shortcomings. They even become critical of their parents. And it's not that the dad suddenly became a bad guy. He's the same guy. But for the first time, the adolescent sees his dad not as Superman, but as just a mortal man. Hopefully in time, that teenager will learn to accept his father and appreciate him for who he is and what he is. Teenagers need to realize that right or wrong, dad is still dad. They're family, and they need to stick together. You know, when a person first comes to Jesus and becomes part of his church, he's so excited. Like a child, she's proud of her spiritual family. In fact, you'll hear new believers in the parking lot fighting over who's pastor's best. Everything's great until they reach spiritual adolescence. Suddenly, he or she begins to see their church in a different light. Flaws become glaring. For the first time, they realize that their church isn't perfect. It's not that the church has gotten worse or there weren't always problems. It's just that the young man or the young woman's perspective has changed. Often a spiritual teenager goes through a period of rebellion. Now that he's started feeding himself, he starts to question those who've been nurturing him. The teenager grows judgmental. They accuse their church of carnality and the pastor of shallowness. The person decides that he or she is the only spiritual person in the church. Hey, I should be the pastor. For people who have to live with a spiritual teenager, this is a very frustrating, it's a very difficult stage of life. It requires tremendous patience. But if you hang in there, eventually that teenager will grow out of it. He or she will mature and develop a new appreciation and love for their church. They'll come to the conclusion that despite the problems, they're still family. In Christ, we have a common bond greater than our differences. And right or wrong, We're still committed to each other. Well, the final stage of spiritual maturity is that of fathers or spiritual parents. And John states just one characteristic here, but he says it twice for emphasis. They have known him who is from the beginning. 
As little children, we knew God as our Father. And we were drawn to Him because He met our needs. We learned we could lean on Him and trust in Him, trust our problems to Him. Even as a spiritual parent, we can still run to our dead when we have a need. But along with that simple faith, the person who reaches this stage of spiritual growth cultivates deeper desires. Their motivations mature. No longer are they drawn to God just for what He does for them. Now they seek Him for who He is. You see, a spiritual parent has a wonder, an awe of the God who is from the beginning. They spent time in His presence. They've learned of His eternal nature and of His infinite beauty. They felt the healing of His embrace. They've been overshadowed by His majesty. They have sensed God's glory and they have been overwhelmed by God's grace. For the spiritual parent, even if they got nothing more out of serving God, they would still serve Him because they realize now that He is worthy to be served. See, the spiritual parent still depends on God and fights battles for God, but he's not as interested in what he can get out of it, nor is he as impressed with his victories. He realizes that the victory belongs to the Lord. All he wants is a deeper knowledge of God. Three decades, three decades after Rabbi Paul's conversion to Christianity, he speaks to the Philippians of his goal in the Christian life. He says, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Recall Paul's exploits after miles of travel and miracles and church plants and soul saves and communities reached. After 30 years of knowing Jesus, his utmost desire was to know him more. Jeremiah 9 reads, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Spiritual parents are no longer impressed with their deeds or their triumphs or their knowledge. They glory not in their mentality or their might or their money, but in the Lord. And the prize for the spiritual parent is no longer God's blessing. Now it's God himself. A.B. Simpson conveys the heart of the spiritual parent. Once it was the blessing, now it is the Lord. Once it was the feeling, now it is his word. Once his gifts I wanted, now the giver own. Once I sought for power, now himself alone. Something beautiful happens to this man or woman who spends time with Jesus. We become like him. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 explains it. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. The person who sits with Jesus and basks in his presence grows kinder and more compassionate. He develops a desire to serve rather than just be served. Understand, a father is a man who lives for others. He slaves daily to carve out a living for his family. Ran across a great definition for a dad. He's a man who carries his pictures where he once carried his money. 
This is what parenthood is all about. When a baby comes into the world, when that first baby came into my world, man, my primary concern was no longer myself. It was the kid. I started pinching pennies. I scraped and saved and sacrificed, not for myself, but now for the fam. My dad often jokes. He says, I used to be Olin, but then I got married. I became Carol's husband. Then my son came along, and I was Sandy's dad. After a while, I became Nick's grandpa. Now I'm Colt's great-granddaddy. But don't let my dad fool you. His family is his greatest joy. He has learned the secret of happiness is not holding on to your life, but it's in giving it away. Listen carefully. Here's a great truth for you. Little children serve because they're told to. Young men serve so they can brag about it later. But spiritual parents serve because they want to be like Jesus. The spiritual parents of the church have discovered that in sharing in Jesus' sacrificial spirit, they can enter into the deepest level of communion with him. Spiritual parents don't wait on church programs to get involved in the lives of others. They sense the needs of younger believers and they step in to take action. You'll find a spiritual father having breakfast with a new believer or meeting with a few friends in his home for Bible study or mentoring a teenager. You don't have to tell a spiritual parent to care for a kid. If he or she is truly a parent, it's natural to nurture. Spiritual parents will come to church not just to be served, but to serve others. They'll want to come along the, alongside the pastor and the staff and help us carry out our vision. And the spiritual parent doesn't have time to be critical of others. They're too busy serving the Lord themselves to worry about others, what others are doing or not doing. I love this poem. It, it sort of sums up the life of a spiritual parent. An old man traveling a lone highway came at evening cold and gray to a chasm deep and wide. The old man crossed in twilight dim for the rushing stream held no fears in him, but he turned when he reached the other side and built a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength building here. Your journey will end with the ending day and never again pass this way. You've crossed this chasm deep and wide. Why build a bridge at evening tide? Good friend, on the path I've come, he said, there follows after me today a youth whose feet will pass this way. This stream, which has been as nothing to me, to that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. Spiritual fathers take the time. They go out of their way to build bridges for others to follow. Well, little children, young adults, spiritual parents... These are the seasons of a saint. And realize it doesn't really matter where you're at in the process, just as long as you're moving forward. Spiritual babies need to become young men and young women. Adolescents need to become parents. Hey, the Christian life is like walking up a sliding board in your socks. You ever try this? It's like walking up a sliding board in your socks. Hey, you can do this. It's no problem as long as you don't stop. 
The moment you stop, that's when you'll slide down. And the same is true in the spiritual life. As long as we're progressing, we're going to get there. If you're a child, be thankful for God's forgiveness. Keep taking your needs to dad. But in addition, start asking God to place a hunger in your heart for his word. If you're a young adult, study the word and fight those battles. But realize there's more. You need to slow down enough to really know God. Seek the Lord, not just for what he'll do or what he'll give, but for who he is. And finally, if you're a spiritual parent, ask the Lord where he wants you to invest your life. Then look around, get involved, and start living your life for others. Such are the seasons of a Christian. May God help us to move forward and to bring our friends with us.